Welcome to the Automotive Diagnostic Podcast. We're going to explore ways to sharpen our diagnostic skills, find learning resources, and hear from experts in the automotive field. Hey, what's going on, automotive world? Welcome to another episode of the Automotive Diagnostic Podcast. My name is Sean Tipping, and I will be your host for today's episode. Joining me on the show this week is Keith Perkins and PJ Walter. Uh, They've both been on the show before. Um, They're joining me because we had a listener request via the Facebook group. Uh, So I appreciate that. And if you're looking for specific content in the show, this is the way to do it. Let me know what you're interested in hearing about or who you're interested in hearing from. But the request for this episode was the ADAS, specifically the new L4 ASE ADAS test uh, that is recently came out. And so we're going to get you some information about this test, what it's all about, what you need to do to study, how it was constructed. And Keith and PJ are going to join me for this. Uh, Keith had a hand in creating the test, which he'll tell you all about in the episode. And PJ just took the test recently, so he'll offer some information there too. So if you're considering taking this ASE test or any other one, this is a great episode uh, for information on the ASE test. And with that out of the way, let's jump in. Sorry, I had to get it out real quick. (laughs) (laughs) You could you could say that if you want. It's no big deal. Just yeah, uh, yeah. market explicit content. It probably <laughs> made it in it actually. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it starts after yeah, the countdown or before. <laughs> well, good evening, boys. How are we doing? Great. I'm doing good. Awesome. Thanks for joining me this evening. I I appreciate it. Um, we had uh, somebody uh, post on the Facebook group a request for some information on the uh, new ADAS uh, ASE L4 test. And uh, we've got Keith Perkins, who helped create the test. And we got PJ, who uh, recently took the test. So I think uh, no better two people to put some information out there and help some guys get ready for it. So what uh, what was your thoughts on the test, PJ, after you took it? I think – so it's been a while. I, I Before we logged on, I was looking at when I took L1 and L3. And it's been uh, four years ago for both of them now, maybe three years ago for the hybrid for L3 and four years ago for L1. Mm-hmm. So, so it's hard for me to compare the composite books back then. Like I don't really remember them as much. But I was telling Keith, it is hands down a very well-written composite book. I don't want to say it's better than L1 or L3, but this composite book is extremely well-written. I know Keith and uh, Mike Reynolds, right? You guys both teamed up on these. I don't know who else was involved. Yeah, so from yeah from the group of people we know, it'd be myself, Mike Reynolds, David Friend, um, and then Scott Brown was sprinkled in there along with like Ryan Coyman and, um, 
think that's the major names of, I feel bad now because I feel like I'm going to forget somebody, but that's like the major names of people we would see in events and stuff that we run into. That's who you guys know. Then a lot of OEs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The composite book is really, really well written. It's almost a, I mean, you can use this to help you learn about these calibrations if you really wanted to. Yeah. So this Uh, is originally, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, uh, sorry. Uh, this, so this is just like the composite vehicle. This is a, I don't know, I'll put it with quotations, made up vehicle that's presented to you with specific components or systems or. Correct. And wiring diagrams and description of operation mm-hmm. of components and systems, uh, target system placement design. Um, yeah, all, all necessary needed information for a knowledgeable candidate in advanced driver assistance systems to pass the test. Cause about 50% of the test is going to be, uh, and I'm not, I'm not giving anything away that's secret. This is stuff you can find in the, in the test preparation information. And, and I can, and throughout this thing, I'll give you guys some info on like how ASC writes tests to give you a better understanding of how much work goes into it. But I think you're going to find that about 50% of the test you take is going to be based upon the composite vehicle. And then 50% will be based upon generic information, which is the hardest content to write to because you cannot write a question that could be wrong for any vehicle. So if it's biased towards one manufacturer, if it's not true for another, it cannot be written. It, it must be uh, correct across the board, every make manufacturer. So it's really difficult to write to. So it's easier to write questions if you have a composite vehicle to work with. Oh yeah, absolutely. It, it the questions were really well written. I didn't think there were any questions that were um, tricky. There was one electrical question that I did think was a little bit tricky. Uh, yeah. Something that would be pretty easy in in the real world, uh, but the way the question was worded, it. I can see a lot of people getting it wrong. I don't know what all I'm allowed to say and what I'm not, but, uh, I mean, you're, you're a test taker, so you could say as much as you want. And, and I, I've been given instruction on what I can talk about and not. So it's cool. Yeah. So there was one question in particular that stuck with me. It was about a communication fault with a brake control module and answer a is a blown fuse. Um, which you would instantly think like that's going to be your fault. Read all of the answers. That's what I'll say without giving the answer away. Read all of the answers. Uh, because if you really look at where that fuse goes to, uh, it doesn't really go to which thing it does. I don't want to give away the answer, but, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. uh, yeah. yeah, that was the only, only real like tricky question, I guess you would say. Yeah. Uh, the, the rest of them are, are pretty well written. If, um, if I were to give some tips, it would probably be make sure you know how to uh, convert millimeters to centimeters to meters. I had a bunch of those questions. Mm. Make sure you understand communication faults, especially on sl- master-slave systems. Had a couple of those questions. Were they named master-slave or were they primary-secondary? Uh, I think they're named primary, secondary, but I'm a Toyota yeah. guy. Remember, it's master slave for that me. That was a struggle because I kept saying master slave, and they're like, "No, we can't use that anymore." <laughs> like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. My uh, strategy for answering ASE questions has always been: I go through all of the 
um, potential answers. And even if I f- see like maybe A is my answer and I'm like, yeah, I know that's right. I still go through the other three and make sure that they're wrong. Like, and I've always felt on the actual tests, maybe not so much the test, uh, um, the um, study guides, study guides, yeah, those can be yeah. questionable, but on the actual tests, they've done a really good job of only making one answer the right one, as long as you're up on the subject content. And so I'll, I'll just go through all three of them. And yeah, all those are yeah. wrong. This is definitely my answer. So Keith, have you been through L4? I know you wrote it. Did you take it yet? I have not taken it yet. No, we, we actually got a date <laughs> planned for the whole shop to go take it. Uh, so we're, we were trying to schedule that, but it looks like they, my local Prometric doesn't have enough spaces for us all to take it at the same time. So, um, so my guys, when we, when they do ASEs, we pay for the test, pass or fail, and then they're clocked in. It's during work hours. So we tell them, you know, you're clocked in, go, go take the test. A, a little funny story. So there was only one pro metric in all of Pittsburgh since I've become a tech in 2005. Right. So I've been going to the same test center since 2005. Now where I work is on one side of Pittsburgh. And you probably don't know much about Pittsburgh, but getting through Pittsburgh, you have to go through a two-lane tunnel that is a nightmare. So going from work to this test center, uh, it's pretty time-consuming. The problem is what I didn't know is that they added a second test center. And I went to the wrong one. (laughs) So then I had to drive all the way back to the other side of Pittsburgh. I was a half hour late. Uh, That was fun. It was fun. (laughs) They were yelling at me for being late. I, I apologize many times. But so, Keith, when you go and take this test, it's set up differently than at least uh, L1 and L3 was. So when I took L1 and L3, I got a paper composite handbook. Now it's all on the computer. And Correct. as you're reading Correct. the test, it will give you a link. And it's Correct. nice because the composite vehicle pops up and then you can hit uh, control F to search the document. I think there might be a search bar, but I, I'm just in the habit of hitting control F for everything. But then you can search the document. You can find everything quickly. So that's nice, too. But not just that. When we were just talking about how we like talk about like this is obviously not the answer. They now have a way to cross out the things that you're 100 percent sure are not right. Which is yeah, nice. It's a visual visual work. So they're trying to improve the test taking experience a lot because a lot of people use the excuse, well, I'm not a good test taker. And that may be true. There are definitely people that um, are good test takers that could take advantage of a poorly written question. Um, so let me let me go on my quick ASC spiel about like some information that everyone should know um, that will help both in taking any ASC test like going forward or uh, for those that aren't familiar with it. So when these tests are written, they they acquire individuals from the industry that are uh, quote-unquote subject matter experts uh, voted by their peers and just kind of a, I won't say buddy system, but we all know a lot of people and we recommend people based on their skill set, right? So I've done quite a few of these um, subject matter expert groups now. And, and here's here's how the flow of test making works. And this isn't any secret. I've, I've been told I'm allowed to talk about this part of it. Um, we get together and we design a task list. And that's in that when you go to the ASC's website and you look up uh, the, the booklet on the v, on that test series, right? 
And the beginning of that test series gives you some like test questions that they put in there, three or four of them on how to take the test and then some information about it. And at the beginning, the information, there's a, a task list and it says a technician must know how to. And then, you know, task A1 on engine building would be like um, how, how to measure a cylinder bore and appropriately check in multiple locations, blah, blah, blah. So and a technician mm-hmm. should know how to and all these different things. Every question we write must be associated with a task on the task list. And they're trying, and they're supposed to be pretty even. Like we may need more questions for X task or Y task, <laughs> right? So every time we write a question, it's written to one of those tasks. So the first thing is, is how do I know what to study? Well, the task list is the big important part. That's written out one of the very first things. Then the next thing that happens is you write a question or sometimes you have a thought process and you're, this is kind of self-guided. Some people write more questions than others. Some people um, tear apart questions better than others. When we get into these groups, sometimes you'll get an individual that only wrote three or four questions, but they, they helped determine all the other questions were good verbally, right? Then other individuals can pump questions out. They'll pump out 50, 60 questions during a, a, themselves during one of these uh, uh, workshops. So you'll write a question. And then you write the answer and then you add three distractors that a less than knowledgeable candidate may take as the correct answer. Uh, Never is it intended that any of those answers are actually possible Uh, according to the, you know, it's not like this one's more right or this one's less right. They're Mm -hmm. written to where this is an incorrect question. This this is an incorrect answer. This is incorrect answer. This is incorrect. And this one's correct. Uh, And there's a lot of information that goes into that. There's like when we write answers, if all of them start with um, A, then then in the answer starts with a, a different letter than the letter A, right? It starts with something like um, two different or whatever, whatever you want to say. That's a three in one, and the answer can't be a three in one. So a, a good a good test taker may recognize that the answer is longer than the other three distractors, or you know, vice versa. There's all this stuff that goes into like rules mm-hmm. in writing these questions. So it's really difficult to write them out. And then what happens is after everyone spends this time writing these questions, we pull them all together and we put it up on the screen or we all look at it and then we try to destroy the question. Like, is this, what's the answer? Could any of the other ones be the answer? And remember, you're in a group of subject matter experts, OE manufacturer, engineers, uh, instructional designers for training departments uh, from aftermarket and most, a ton of OE stuff, right? So, mm-hmm. for instance, I wrote a question one time on the A1 test uh, that was like, there was coolant found in the combustion chamber. Which of these could be the cause? And one of the distractors that I put was an exhaust valve seal, valve guide seal, right? That's an obvious wrong answer, correct? Everyone agree? Obvious I wrong answer? So. That is not a wrong answer. If you work on industrial <laughs> okay. GM heavy duty engines, they have wet exhaust valves. There's a coolant passage over the exhaust valve guide seal. I did not know that, but somebody there did. <laughs> so, okay. so, so to us, that would be an obvious question, right? But then if you're an engine builder that's worked in on some industrial GM engines, and you're sitting there taking the test, you're going, that's wrong, right? That's there's this, this could be an answer. And this could be an answer. Cause the que- the answer was like head gasket or something, you know, something in obvious, sure. but within the a one world of, of engine mechanical would make sense. Um, so that those are, those are why those, these workshops exist because you can write a question that you will swear and you can ask a hundred people, you know, but you get, 15, 20 experts in a room and there's somebody that knows something you don't know. Um, so but yeah. that's that's the structure of how the questions are written. Um, and then my other quick tip for anyone taking a test is technician A and B. Uh, we do our best not to write those at all because they are mentally difficult. 
But if you break it down as this is two true or false questions, these technicians have never talked to each other. They've never met. They're not in the same building. It's just a true or false question for A or a true or false question for B. That is kind of how you break down that question a little easier. So I give that ASG spiel anytime anyone asks me about it, but that whole that whole thing. Hopefully that will be uh, usable for someone in the future and looking at that. And everything comes down to, to, is this a good question? Then we get done writing all these questions and it goes to someone who has to rewrite them. They must be at an eighth grade group reading level because across the state, across the country, that's really the only thing that's standardized is up to like eighth grade reading. And then, uh, hmm. so it's difficult and then things get, things get moved around. So sometimes the test gets broken by an editor, although it's tried to stay true to its actual original form, certain verbiage isn't used, right? Like in, I'm in Oklahoma, we use tappet cover still a lot. I have people all the time. Oh, it's a tappet cover gasket. It's a valve cover gasket, but sure, mm-hmm. whatever. Or a head cover gasket. That's used a lot in terminology, depending upon the manufacturer you work on. So Sure. Lots, lots and lots of stuff like that that gets broken down. So, so it's quite the effort that goes into to making any of these tests, but I got to imagine a brand new one that doesn't, you didn't have anything to work with. That's got to yeah. be, that's got to be a ton, a ton of work. Um, yeah. yeah, you can download the vehicle composite, the, the composite vehicle uh, booklet on the ASE website that thing at one point in time was almost a hundred pages and it just got to become an animal and we had to wrangle it back. So it could have been extremely much, so much larger, but you know, the amount of money it costs to make a test that big and have someone set there, like your, your cost of taking that test would be expensive just because of how much money it costs to have Prometric host that and have a technician set there for three and a half hours. Right. Yeah. I think you guys got it down to about 50 pages. Yeah, that's pretty, that sounds right. Um, yeah. Um, what I'll do actually is there's the, uh, the ASE study guide or introduction to the test and then also Mm -hmm. the composite vehicle. And I can actually put links to those in the show notes for this episode for anybody listening that wants to check them out. I, I briefly scanned through them, uh, before we launch this. I haven't, I haven't studied or I, I, I'll probably try to take this test eventually, but uh, figured I'd, yeah. <laughs> I'd hear about it first. Because for a candidate uh, you, that's knowledgeable, you will get a very high passing score. Um, yeah. So you were talking about some people are just better at taking tests. I've always felt like I am a good test taker. If I have a base level knowledge of a subject, I feel like I can pass a multiple choice um, test. And yeah. Uh, Example of that, I'm not I'm not trying to brag or anything. I'm just my experience with ASC tests. I took the L3 test in 2014, kind of like you did with this one, PJ, where it was introductory, right? It's the first time they're doing it. We're trying to get people in to come do this test. It was longer than the normal one. And I didn't have a lot of experience with hybrids or electric. Or, well, it was it was just the hybrid test at that point. It wasn't an electric vehicle, but I didn't personally, I had pulled some safety disconnects, but that was it. But I studied up on what I could. Um, and with, with, a you know, base level understanding of mechanics and then electrical, I was able to pass the test. That's what got me through that test. Honestly, was understanding electrical got me, got me the passing grade on that. And then I got it. I'm like, oh boy, you know, I have this certification. Uh, now I feel like I actually need to go, <laughs> you know, really work on these things and get better at this. But, um, well, that's the nice thing that I like about ASCs, especially when I originally took L1, was it wasn't just good enough to pass, right? It, it like, 
how, how do I want to say this? It like humbled me. Like I, I pay attention to the questions that I do not know. And it's like, mm-hmm. I need to work on this. Like I, I, I'm humble enough, put my ego aside, even though I passed, I know if I get five or six, however many wrong, I know that I need to study on those things. You know, that's, what's nice about ASE. Even if you do uh, pass the test, you know, there's always more to learn. Must go buy five gas analyzer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I mentioned these tests are longer, and I, I think one of you said that that was the case with this one, where it's almost double the questions as what the yeah, final so final will be. This one was 80 questions, and I had three hours to do it. Okay. I think the final test will be 40 questions in two hours to complete it. Correct. Yeah, so the way it's setting right now, um, everyone that's taking the test, come August 23rd, I'll be in Leesburg, Virginia, looking over what is a passing score for this test. Um, Liz and I actually, Liz is going as well um, to, to work on this. What is what is a passing test and some other metrics in it? And then kind of maybe some preliminary. I'm not sure. I haven't ever done a, a, a new L-series test overlook after the test run of the test. So this is a first for me too, but I don't know how much, what else we're looking at. Um, but typically, so, so everyone's taken the ASE test and they've got that little note at the beginning that says there's 10 questions that aren't graded against you. Right. But you don't know what they are. Mm-hmm. So every one of these workshops, we update all the time. So if you've ever gone and taken the A1 test 10 years ago, uh, it was a really old test series. It hadn't been in 2015 when we redid the A1 test it had not been done in over eight years, redone or upgrade, updated. So there was still like a ton of vacuum regulated fuel pressure regulator questions. There was nothing about multiple displacement, variable valve lift, uh, variable valve timing. So all of those things got added in there, right? Um, so if you go take the A1 test now, you're going to get asked about displacement on demand, variable compression ratio, variable valve lift, variable valve timing um, gasoline direct injection, you're going to be asked about those, right? Um, and, and that's part of what happens during these workshops is updating them as well. Well, this this is kind of a whole whole new thing, right? Well, that's what those test questions are. Every time we have a workshop, we make these new pool of questions, we add them in, and then we look and go, okay, out of X amount of top amount of people that passed this with a very high score, a lot of those people missed this question, so mm. what is wrong with this question? And then it gets brought in during a workshop. So when it becomes a statistical anomaly, it gets set aside and it's like, hey, hold up. Don't grade this against people because people that are passing this at a high level are missing this question. This may be a poorly written question, a broken question, a whatever, right? It might just might actually have two right answers because it, it falls through the cracks, right? So that's what those are. And this first you know months of this all the way up until September of this year, no one will get their grade for that. And it will be the 80 question version. Uh, just as soon as the August setup is done and we go into the fall um, actual session for ASE, people will it'll go to the normal test and you'll be getting your your results immediately, right? And that's all written in an email that was put out by ASE. Uh, but that's it, it'll be nice to see that, uh, and I'm going to try to take it before because I want to see the AD question version for sure and kind of see. You know, it's kind of fun to sit there in an ASE and be like, oh, I wrote this question. I know the answer to this one. <laughs> Feels kind of like cheating. 
Well, yeah, you better get that question right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's what Mike Reynolds said on Facebook. He was like, "Watch you get a better, better uh, score than I do." I'm like, "If I get a better score than you do, something's wrong." You probably wrote, you know, at least a quarter of the questions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard a lot of feedback about this test so far, and I'm fairly positive this is probably one of the easiest advanced level tests, simply because there are so many hard physics inputs into ADOS, right? Like a radar works this way and a camera works this way, right? So there are a lot of questions because when it came to writing um, uh, non-vehicle specific questions, it was like a radar calibration has failed. Which of these could be the cause? And you're like, the room's too dark. The room's too light. And there's a 5G tower next to you. And it's like, oh, the target's in the wrong location. <laughs> I know how this works. So a, a, a knowledgeable candidate who understands ADOS would totally understand this 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 test really well. Do you do you agree or disagree, PJ, taking it? I do agree, but I do think you do need to be somewhat knowledgeable, right? So there were some questions about dynamic calibrations and what road conditions are most conducive for a camera calibration compared to a radar calibration. So if it's not something you you've done before. And right. you're just going in there, you know, just taking it. Heck, if I'm going to be honest with you, if you're a Toyota dealership tech and you don't do dynamic calibrations, you know, yeah, 2022 yeah. models are dynamic now. But yeah, still, yeah. you know, you, you need to understand what road conditions are best for dynamic calibrations, especially the difference between radars and front cameras, um, how weather affects different sensors, right? And you need to know what these different sensors are. Like LIDAR is light waves. And uh, blind spot monitors, you know, electromagnetic waves. And ultrasonic is sound waves, you know, and how weather affects these things. So I had a couple questions about how weather affects each radar system differently. Yeah. So even though it's easy for someone like Keith Perkins, who does this stuff (laughs) all the time, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it'd be uh, advantageous to actually have done some of these yourself before you jump into the test. Yeah, for sure. Yes. I can see that. But over, yeah, the overarching yeah. thing is, is if you understand how each system operates, you'll have a very good basis of where to start on this. You've got to yes. kind of think outside the box. One thing I noticed we didn't write a bunch to was suspension issues. Um, mm. So in later iterations of, of that, I have lots of test questions that, I've, that I'm going to get in the pool that, because uh, I've been seeing a lot more lately. As we get more aged vehicles in our bays, I'm finding more like worn, worn front strut uh, springs are causing issues. Like, oh, this vehicle's ride height is too far out I, from factory to pass correctly. I okay. did have a question about broken rear springs causing um, unintended activation of the system. I do remember a, a question like that. Hmm. Yeah, we've got some about rear height causing issues with like front pitch um, on camera based systems and then ultrasound. As a matter of fact, on all of the systems, we tried to we tried to take like when we found a good question, like with a good um, answer key, we were like, how can we take this question into each category? Right. How can a broken spring as the answer because it adjusts uh, pitch the vehicle and then also thrust angle. Right. Depending upon the, mm-hmm. the suspension type. So, like, how can we take that answer and push it into an ultrasonic question, a radar-based question, a camera-based question? 
so on and so forth, right? So you may find very similar questions with that. And it's to determine the understanding of that. So yeah, so having rear springs, I think I'm not remember I think it was a Subaru guy that came up with some of those questions. Um and and they were really uh there's some questions about even like heads up display type that are that can become difficult. Um there's a few like not gonna lie, during during the workshop, they put some questions up there and I totally bombed them because I was like, I don't understand what I'm missing here that none of it made sense to me. And there's just portions of that that were completely dumbfounded me. I, I just didn't like, like I said, the heads up display thing. I was unaware that polarized lenses can affect heads up display. Depending oh, upon like the type the, of sunglasses you're talking about. Yes. Polarized sunglasses. Well, I got can, that one wrong. <laughs> mess up with your view of, yeah, I, I did too. Just so we're clear. I did too. Like the first time I saw it, I was like, what? <laughs> hmm. and there's some there's some documentation from like bmw and porsche about their brand of sunglasses they sell for driving their cars doesn't affect oh. the heads up display and I'm of like, course of they course. do <laughs> of course it's all about the money yeah yeah oh sir you can't wear those sunglasses in the BMW. <laughs> yeah sorry your oakley's aren't gonna work in your bmw <laughs> <laughs> oh man um, so what do you guys think as, as you were mentioning as these vehicles age, right? And more and more ADAS features on vehicles, we're moving, I don't know how many years down the road to autonomous vehicles. And this stuff's going to be more and more commonplace and, and critical to vehicle operation. Do you see a cert like maybe not ASE, but like this becoming required if you want to work on these systems eventually, or what? W- What's your, is nobody knows what's going to happen, but what's your prediction for the future with these systems? Go for it, PJ. I have no real prediction. I, I can't, I have no real prediction, but I did hear through the grapevine that insurance companies were debating on requiring L4 mm. to pay for these calibrations. Have you heard anything like that? No, but I'm, I'm positive. They won't, they won't specify only ASE. Because ICAR already has a few programs in place as well. Um, so, so they may just say you need a, some type of certification. Yeah, one, yeah some type yeah. of – they'll probably uh, use the same verbiage they use for a lot of things that, uh, that they will only pay out for someone with a nationally recognized certification, uh, which for ADOS will probably okay. be something like ASC or ICAR. It'll probably be the only two options out there. Um, just kind of kind of depends. There's some friends of ours that are working on – like certification type processes that are separate from the rest of the industry, something new. So I don't, I don't know how much I'm allowed to talk about it all. So we'll, we'll leave it at that. There may be some other cool certification processes coming out to enhance those that are already out there. Gotcha. But uh, I, I could see that. So my thought for the future is I, I I'm more doom and gloom, fire and brimstone. I suspect um, that we will have more and more uncalibrated vehicles to the point where we will have a John Eagle collision type case for, for ADOS calibrations. Um, so what I have been told again, I haven't, I actually haven't, um, had the time to research this and prove it or disprove it. So I will leave it that this is through the grapevine and of no actual, uh, truth yet. But there have been three cases that involved ADOS and, uh, and the possibility of litigation because one wasn't calibrated correctly 
All three of them were based were based on it wasn't calibrated with an OEE system. And so far that I'd heard is those three cases all ended in success with with uh, using an aftermarket system was perfectly fine, at least by the court system so far. Because mm. I guess they have to prove that it that using a non OE system would be an issue. And so that's that's I see that being more of the fight that everyone's got into for a while. And then there'll be a lot of these cars that have oddball systems like some of the early Infinity Light R and some of the early camera based Hyundai Kia systems like 0809 cars had lane departure warning on some Hyundai's. Yeah. Um so those that have Sienna. Yeah. Yeah. So some of those that have weird targets and stuff, those I think those cars will set around being uncalibrated, or in a lot of those cars, to get them calibrated correctly, the cost will far outweigh the value of the vehicle. So we'll have a sure. lot of um, e-waste in cars that are of low quality in the used market because of it. Um, that's what I suspect will happen kind of overall, and it'll get to the point where I would really hope to see at some point a standard camera target, a standard radar target and procedure Um both static like, uh, and dynamic as an option, as an either or, because so many cars are un unfixable because no one's willing to spend money on the like a OBD two of ADAS. Yeah. Okay. Shops just aren't big enough to do static calibrations. At least, yeah. at least where I'm from, everything is an old two bay, uh, old gas station. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I heard that thing about land. They're not going to make any more. And so it's difficult to. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that was actually going to be another question that I had was, do you foresee this for maybe somebody who's young, a technician that's in tech school, um, maybe you just hate the, what you're, where you're at or what you're doing. Could you make a career just out of this in the future? Maybe not today, but maybe today. I don't, you guys can tell me, but 10 years down the road, could you just be an eight ass tech and be successful in it? You think it's, going to be that or is most of the stuff going to be dynamic and then it's not as big of a deal as we're making it out to be i expect most manufacturers to do both static and dynamic uh doing dynamic calibrations up north above you know up here in pittsburgh during the winter time mm-hmm. it's really mm-hmm. hard uh the roads are nothing but white from salt yeah there's no lines <laughs> yeah exactly there's no lines in, on the ground from uh, December to February. So doing a dynamic calibration then, it's almost impossible. Uh, so static is going to come in handy in those situations. But I, I think technology will advance enough where they'll, where they'll be able to do both static and dynamic. Yeah. I, I, I We will see a heavy push from manufacturers to give the either or there's a static or dynamic option just because of that. There, there are so many vehicles like, could you imagine trying to do a dynamic calibration on like a Ford truck in, in you know, Staten Island, like you got to <laughs> drive over 55 miles per hour, not making abrupt left or right turns or acceleration, deceleration. Like yeah, you got to drive, you got to drive out to LaGuardia to try that, you know, <laughs> that's, that's just not going to happen. Right. So, so most manufacturers have pushed towards a, a also a static option. Uh, but then back to the original question, could a young tech, you know, come out and, and do just this? I think the glass industry is is running into to this now. They thought, oh, I could buy this XYZ aftermarket calibration system, and I also install glass, so it's perfect. And then they get in there, and if you're in these ADOS groups of these guys, 
Uh, and I hate to be demeaning towards the group of glass individuals, but the the heavy 99% of them that are doing this have little to no understanding of what's really happening. So there's every single day I'm in these groups, I'm reading someone, I'm trying to do this calibration, it's failing, what should I do? And I'm like, well, it all goes back to exactly the same thing, which is reading service info and understanding the system. And then the answer becomes pretty prevalent to the point where I'm the bad guy because I'm like, look, man, just double check your suspension heights. We got to check. And they go, I'm just a glass guy. I'm not doing an alignment. I'm like, well, in order for this to be successful, the alignment has to be correct. Thrust angle is important. Steering angle is important. A vehicle with a skewed steering angle sensor will fail a calibration forever. You're not going to, you're not going to move the target around to fix that. And you should never move the target around from the factory position anyways. But this is a daily, like dozens of times a day, per group that's asked and and I think the glass industry is finding out that you can't just do ADOS without understanding the rest of the vehicle. Vehicles are yeah. too intertwined system to system to do anything successfully with a good success rate, um, a high success rate without understanding all of the systems in the vehicle. It's just I, I just don't see it being being that way. So it's gonna be a high level although this is a you know medial uh, remedial task type thing where you're dropping plumb bobs and pulling strings and measuring with a laser over and over and over again. It's kind of like programming. It's really easy until it's not. And as soon as yeah, there's sure. a problem, that's when it separates, you know, the, the men from the women, right? Where we Keith, have no have idea you? what we're doing and, and Liz steps in and figures it out. <laughs> that's- Keith, have you had a uh, blind spot fail because of a Kappa sticker yet? Yeah. You know those yeah. metallic Stupid Kappa foil stickers? Kappa sticker, yeah. I've yeah. had it twice. I just got hit with it today again. <laughs> what? Yeah, I don't even know what's a, almost what's a Kappa for sticker. It now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it's just a, a part number sticker on the inside of back bumpers, rear bumpers, that are right oh. in the um, blind spot area. Kind of like, um, like the stickers on tires, how it's like a metallic sticker. Sure. It's the same sure. thing. <laughs> but yeah, they put Kappa it on is the certified automotive parts association. Is Kappa certified automotive parts association? That's correct. Yeah, had to pull the Rolodex up. So they they certify things as being quality aftermarket parts, and then they smack their sticker on it, and they put that foil <laughs> sticker right where the blind spot monitor tries to see through, <laughs> and that doesn't work well, not at all. Dang. Also, that's a, that's I work a on handy a lot tip of, there. Yeah. I work on a lot of Chryslers <laughs> that have oddball blind spot monitoring after issues after they're installed. Like the, the blind spot indicator comes on for no reason, goes off for no reason, doesn't see cars, turns on when there's no cars. And 99% of the time, the blind spot monitors are flipped inside out and they're facing towards the car instead of facing <laughs> outward. <laughs> Super common. Like dozens of times that has happened. That's why I had that question so many times on L4. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I had multiple that was questions thing. about the about the sensor being on on backwards. <laughs> so that's another thing that was a first for ASC. Typically, we're not allowed to write questions that the answer is another technician screwed up. Like that that's kind of a no no in the test writing thing for ASC. But in this test, all of us that work in the field pushed really hard. We're like, look, this is a real problem. Reassembly being incorrect is a is a real issue, so uh, that did get to show up a lot because I, we find that a lot of the, a vast majority of the issues, ninety nine percent of the issues of a calibration failing 
after a collision repair are due to an improper collision repair or an incomplete collision repair. Maybe an alignment's not done. Maybe the steering angle didn't get reset after the alignment. Maybe the suspension ride height's wrong. Maybe a, a bent suspension component, in, improper thrust angle, improper assembly, wiring damage, you name it, that's typically the problem. So yeah, and it sounds like uh, visual inspection uh, after repair and you got issues like that is going to be really important too to just get your eyes on some of these components and make sure that the bracket's not bent. I've seen uh, you know people post case studies about that seems to be a common issue or yeah I, I haven't heard of it flipped around upside down or you know backwards but that could totally happen. Uh, yeah. Radars flopping around, yeah, yeah. just plugged yeah. in and hanging. That's that happens a lot. <laughs> We didn't unplug it, so it doesn't need calibrated. I'm like, it's pointing at the floor. <laughs> <laughs> That's not how that works. <laughs> I get guys at body shops all day that tell me, That's not how that works. I'm like, That is exactly how that works. I'm like, if you touched it, we must calibrate it. No. Yes. Well, my windshield guy said that he doesn't want to unplug it, so you don't have to calibrate it. Oh. <laughs> I, I, Dream of the day where ADOS calibration sensors have like a void sticker on them. And if it gets touched, it has to be calibrated. And then some only people, those of us are like small, like only those of us that are certified get to put a new void sticker on it. You know, <laughs> they just send Keith a roll and you can put the. <laughs> so, what are some other takeaways, PJ? From I now I'm now I'm questioning, I'm taking the lead there. <laughs> Anything else you noticed from the test that was different is what I kind of wanted to know. As far as different, not really. Not really. Uh, Good. I, it was, like I said, it was a well-written test. I liked how it was written. I like I like the new system that they're using as far as crossing out answers and highlighting answers like probable answers. You had the ability to highlight them as well. Uh, but I, I liked the test. I liked I like the test. I think you guys did a heck of a job, you know, mixing different manufacturers, right? Because it was, we'll say it's a very similar front camera calibration to a Honda, you know? Yeah. And I yeah. think so, some of the uh, surround calibrations might have been like a BMW or European calibration of, you know. Yeah. Trying to use a matte style. Yeah. So, so just about all the manufacturers got a little little bit in there but yeah it was just yeah. well written it was yeah. hard enough where somebody who does not know these systems probably isn't going to pass it right and that's the point but, of every test right to yeah. separate the knowledgeable from less than knowledgeable but if you know these systems and if you know how these systems operate now keep in mind i'm currently building an ADIS class myself so i'm kind of cheating as well, you know, <laughs> hey, me too. Going, going in deep dives into LIDAR and uh, yeah. how cameras can do road sign, you know, uh, what do they call it? Recognition. Yeah, road sign recognition and all, all that stuff. So, yeah, kind of got a little bit of a head start myself just by building a class because anybody who's built a class knows that you learn far more building a class than you ever will working on cars. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's insane, like, reading SAE documents and... Well, all of us teach and write content in some capacity, all three of us, so we can all agree that you never learn more than when you're trying to study to teach it to somebody. Yep. Yeah, it's insane. It, 
building a class is probably one of the hardest things I've ever done only because like, it never feels like there's an end. Right. Right. Do you feel that way, Keith? Like as I'm building a class, it's like, no, I, I need to know more about this. And then as you learn more, then you realize that there's a lot that you don't know. So then you have to learn more. And it's just this vicious cycle that never ends. Yeah. Once you actually teach the class, then you're like, and, and you put in all that work, you're like, okay, well, it could be that much better. Or I can get to the point better here. I do this differently. And so even if you like, you do a really good job getting the information together, then you want to revamp the way it's presented or how it interacts with the students or or whatever. And it, it, yeah, it, it's never a finished product. There's always something more that you want to tweak or do better, find out more about. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still, I've been teaching the same drivability class for like two years now. And I still like add and take stuff away. <laughs> so, yeah, I have a programming I class. Like how this <laughs> What's up? I have a programming class. You want to talk about consistently adding and taking away things. <laughs> but that's not, that's not at your choice. No. That's because you no. don't have a choice. But still. Hey, like, look, just why tech. Y-Tech just got changed today. So <laughs> funny story. I'm teaching domestic CTI programming tomorrow evening and Thursday because I teach every thir- Tuesday and Thursday for CTI in the evening. And I'm like rushing to get this class changed for tomorrow so it's up to date. Because um, <laughs> I wrote that class for CTI and I'm constantly like literally two days ago, I wrote uh, an email to him saying, hey, I just updated the GM pictures on this because the, the, you know, TechLine Connect changed a little bit. They put all the stuff on the left-hand side. Yeah. It was like a couple weeks ago they did that, and I just haven't got around to changing it because it wasn't that big of a change, right? It doesn't change your ability to do it by them by that class being out of date by three weeks. But I just changed all that stuff and sent an email two days ago to CTI. I was like, hey, here's some changes for the domestic class. And then I sent an email this morning. It was like, stop, wait, there's more. Just give me a few <laughs> days. <laughs> So I'm like, oh, this happens every time. Like my, I, every, and what sucks about it for me, like when I write one of those classes or when I teach a programming class, I'll get the books printed, and then typically by the time from the time the books are printed to when it's time to teach class, there's already a revision. So I'm like, all right, guys, first day of class, first 20 minutes, real quick, everyone turn to page 67 in the book, real quick, uh, mark <laughs> this out, and or I printed a revision, staple this in your book. This is so, and I always order extra books. So everyone's always asking me about my book and I'm like, eh, it's not really good without the class. So now I have four versions of the book laying around in the shop. So we're going to put them up on the website pretty soon and just be like, these are all wrong. I'll sell them to you. <laughs> yeah. If you want the uh, 2018 version, you're not going to be able to do a whole lot with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like they're useless. <laughs> That's why I feel every time I write a class, I'm like, it's just useless later. Yeah. (laughs) What else do you guys got going on? I mean, Keith, I know you're super busy. Uh, We're we're all super busy in this industry, but what's uh, what's new with both of you guys? I'm just uh, doing the World Pack thing after work, you know, still working in the dealership. Not sure if I'm allowed to say that, but I no longer care if I'm allowed to say that. (laughs) 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 <laughs> we're gonna have to name it something the waltering <laughs> <laughs> yeah toyota doesn't like me being everywhere so uh 
Too bad. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I'm still working for the dealership for now. Uh, doing the World Pack thing at night. You know, I moderate classes quite a bit. Trying to build some classes up. I have I have two finished. I have a basic electrical and intro to scope class. I have the Toyota drivability class. And uh, trying to build a, an ATIS class currently. And you're going to be teaching uh, Super Saturday? Am I allowed to say that? Yeah, yeah, I'll be teaching at Super Saturday. I don't That's know posted if anyone's going to be in my already. Yeah, I don't know if anybody's going to be in my class with the big guns I'm going against, like John Thornton. Like, who's going to take my class with John Thornton there? <laughs> I don't even want to take my class. Like, I want to send in John Thornton. <laughs> <class. laughs> like, here's a recording of my class. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, was, I'm teaching it Super Saturday. Uh, I believe it's the evening class. I believe it's one of the evening classes. So awesome! I actually I'm planning on going to this. I've never been, and I've tried twice, and it's been canceled or <laughs> shut down for COVID. And so I'm excited to actually go. Yeah. Now you were at you were at ASTE last year. Mm-hmm. Keith, are you teaching at ASTE? Yes. Uh, Which class teaching, are you teaching down there? So I'm going to do a destination class at the Research and Development Center for CTI. So we're going to probably do, we're probably going to have a couple Asian cars up there and just do a bunch of programming hands-on. Going to bring a bunch of Isaac's laptops and interfaces and stuff and get get some, some people programming some stuff, I think. Yeah, I'm helping, I'm helping Isaac with his hybrid class on there. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that either, but. Yeah, yeah I, Isaac and I were going to be doing a eight-hour hybrid class in the CTI center as well. Yep. Some hands-on uh, hybrid testing. Doing it Thursday or Friday, right? One of those days. I don't know. I don't know. So there, there is going to be classes from ASTE at the Research and Development Center Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Nice. Well, I guess so I got to go to both RDC of those now. For, yeah. The RDC is really cool. It's a full functioning like shop and research center and, and uh, video studio. So it's pretty cool. I just know I need to leave my hotel at three in the morning that Sunday <laughs> to fly into Florida because after we like Keith, when we were at STX, we went to Universal, right? Right. Were you at Universal also? Yeah. Yeah. Did you yeah, yeah I went there. All right. So we were at Universal. And I was telling my wife about it, so she decided to schedule a trip to Universal to surprise my daughter, who loves Harry Potter. She uh, scheduled it uh, the day after ASTE. <laughs> but she wants to surprise my daughter, and they are getting to Florida at 10 in the morning. And the only flight option I have to be there to see the surprise is me leaving at 3 in the morning. <laughs> oh, oh, that should be fun, though. Yeah, it will be fun. Well, then I will say that I have a lot more going on than you do, PJ. <laughs> I, I miss the days where I didn't have that, but that much going on. Let's see. I am, we're still teaching, we're doing classes at uh, the L1 training facility in Tulsa like every month or two. Uh, we got one coming up in August, another programming class in August. Trying to get with Christopherson. He keeps hitting me up to do EPROM dates at the shop again, but I'm just trying to find dates to plug in and say yes to him to do another EPROM event there. Uh, I think I got another hands-on. <laughs> I, I have a funny name for the class just so it will attract the people that need to take it anyways. It's called Advanced Application of Fundamental Electrical Theory. <laughs> so it's it's basic electrical plus what can you do with your scope that's cool. Um, 
<laughs> that class I teach a couple times a year too at the shop. And then of course we have a, for those that don't know, I have a brick and mortar shop that services customers. Uh, then we also have a mobile company with three vans. Uh, so I got, I, I currently have three guys right now. I got a Laramie and two Zacks um, that are running around in vans in Tulsa, Oklahoma, going to other shops, doing all that stuff. I'm still writing world pack and CTI classes. I'm still writing classes for myself, still running the stuff on the website, but I'm also teaching every Tuesday and Thursday night for CTI. Dang. Virtual. Yeah. And then also I do strategic account, uh, strategic accounts for CTI and world pack. So every month or two I'm doing like Firestone, Bridgestone, CarMax stuff all across the the country. So and an ASE content expert. I don't yeah. know if you threw yeah. that in there. But. <laughs> yeah, 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 that too. Uh, I'm slowly pushing Liz into that. She's going to be going with me in August to for the ASE thing because she's, she's done hundreds of ADOS calibrations, just hundreds. Uh, Every one of them that comes to the shop, which is all throughout the day, Monday through Friday, she's doing them. So nice. It's a, it's a daunting so task. You mentioned that if you see a lot of people get a question wrong, you're going to throw it out. What about yeah, the first, other end? What if you see 100% of the people get a question right? Do you think uh, that's too uh, easy of a question? I don't know, actually. That's a great question. I'm going to have to ask someone and then ask if it's okay for me to share the answer. <laughs> I do know that... <laughs> That it's that it's open knowledge that those first questions are test questions, and that I have been instructed that it's okay to talk about that, how that like they get tested and then reevaluated. And we know for sure when questions get, I get told for sure that when questions are missed too often by people who otherwise score highly, that that question gets reevaluated by the group. And then like every time I go in for a workshop, that's what we start with. Like, hey, here's all the questions that went through the last test series that are of of question now. And some of them are because the age group of technicians is changing and uh, certain verbiage and, and system types are just no longer. And my best example is like the vacuum controlled fuel pressure regulator system. Like we basically had to remove all those questions from the A1 tests because they just, what's the last car that has one of those? Like a Ford truck, like a 0506 Ford truck still uses some of their V6s still used a vacuum regulator fuel pressure. Regulator. Everything else is electronic. That's, that's got to be the latest. Or, yeah, electronic or returnless or whatever. had it for a while. Oh, I yeah. I bet you yeah. a 15 Forerunner has it still. What? Yeah. But you need but to then, understand the Forerunner's like, if you want a, if you want a solid vehicle, you got to go with the Forerunner. Still use yeah. like old yeah. older technology, the best powertrain ever built. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to get on Toyota Cell's good side now. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll agree with that. I'll agree with that for sure. And like... uh Everyone dogs Nissans, myself and Brandon Dills for, for like a Nissan, but we all, we, we both have similar taste. We like the rear wheel drive V8, V6, four wheel drive. Uh, if it's CVT, it's trash. I'm not going to lie. Uh, it's just a piece of junk, but, but like our NV 2500 vans we use for mobile. I buy the four liter ones, the six cylinders, and they all come with a four liter and a five speed. They've been using that drivetrain since like Oh three, Oh four. And you can get a 19 or 20 NV 2500, same thing. There's no direct injection that's still got, you know, port injection, still variable valve time, same exact engine and trans. Yeah. The, nice. The five ER trans and the and the four liter fantastic combo. Well, some sometimes something just works, right? And yeah. uh, you, you wish they wouldn't change or get away from that, but Yeah. 
it happens. So, so. Sean, do you do any uh, ATIS programming? No, uh, we had some targets at school, um, and we did a little, little bit with that, very little. Um, and I've done some at training events, and then I've done some dynamic stuff where you don't need targets. But yeah. I, one of the reasons I thought this would be interesting to talk to you guys would be like for somebody like me who is very, very inexperienced. You know, what's what's even necessary for me to attempt this test? And I feel like I need to go out and do some, and then do some studying on top of it. Yeah, so to go into that, like I, I don't know how much more time we got. I don't, I don't care. But um, to cover that kind of stuff, definitely go do some. But then you're gonna have to study like okay, okay. First of all, what's the difference between a static and dynamic, right? And then that alone, if you're not familiar with ADOS calibrations at all, that that can trip you up. Static using a target and dynamic used uh, initializing a calibration function in a module and then driving it um, mm-hmm. until that's complete. And then what does complete look like and what's important? And like, so the, the basics of ADOS are heavily, heavily leaned on following service info, like vehicle setup and preparation and area setup and preparation is the make or break thing. Um, some cars are just highly susceptible to, to issues like the, the sequential, we still haven't bought the one-time recognition Toyota target. I just haven't broke down and done it. We just still do the three-step right on some of those which is terrible because the third one or the second one gives us trouble and we've got to go and do exactly what service info says and have somebody hold up a giant cardboard sheet behind it because it's always something in the background yeah so that's just kind of how what it runs into is like what so vehicle setups important like tire pressures are actually important fuel level is actually important ride height is actually important it really is. The vast majority of people that run into a problem have not followed that. They've kind of blasé with it. So our issue is is fuel level. We do a lot of cars collision centers and fuel levels off. And I'm like, oh, I got to go mm-hmm. put gas in this thing. And they're like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, that's what it says. So my question was always like, the manufacturers say it has to be full. The car is shipped empty. What did they do to do this at the end of the line? And then right. a, some in-depth research revealed that end-of-line calibrations are nothing like aftermarket. Not uh, what's that's a bad term. After end-of-line calibrations are totally different than the end-of-line calibration. Um, gotcha. Toyota got a picture from a Toyota um, manufacturing plant, and they have that big board. I'm sure PJ's seen it. That's got like all the different targets in the one spot on one board. And it's really yeah. weird because they're all over the place. And you're like, well, how does that work? And it's like, well, it's the end-of-line calibration. So there's the car is on a jig based on like the unibody and stuff. It's not the precision calculation. Because that's, that's the argument by a lot of companies. They're like, oh, well, our target's smaller, and that's fine because the end-of-line calibration is smaller. Like you cannot replicate the end-of-line accuracy in after sales. Like on a non-100% level, non-frame jigged vehicle with perfect lighting. It's, it's just It just can't happen. And that's, that's the issue. So that, that was always really interesting to me. Do any of the vehicles have to be loaded beyond the gas tank? And what I'm thinking of is doing alignments. I did a lot of those at Firestone and they'd have the warning that pop up, say, Hey, you're supposed to load this vehicle simulating passengers. 40 pounds here, 40 pounds here, 80 pounds here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have not done one yet that required additional loading beyond a full fuel level. Not that uh-huh. I've come across. Either. Most of them tell you to remove any any loads from the vehicle that are not yes. um, standard. Yeah, so sure. don't remove the spare tire, but if there's a bag and you know if there's luggage in the back, remove it. Um, gotcha. 
My thing is tires. A lot of the manufacturers don't specify tread depth issues. And we run into it a lot with collision cars and stuff. It's like got one, it's got a set of new tires on the rear, not the front. And we go to measure them and the rear tires are a different brand than the front. And you measure mm-hmm. the actual height. And we just, just had a Tiguan that came from a collision center. They got a brand new left front tire and the other uh, three tires were fine, but it was set in a TPMS code and it was an indirect system. And the tires both had similar tread depth, but they were different brands. And one was 1.2 centimeters taller than the other. Yep. I was like, I've run into that, not with the, that specific, but it was, uh, I think it was an ABS or wheel speed sensor issue. And the same thing, yeah. they were new tires, but one was a different brand. And we did the tape thing where you put a piece of tape and you roll it across the shop. We're like, oh yeah, this is way off on this one tire. So yeah, we just straight up measured height and it was 1.2 centimeters different. I'm like, that is like half an inch. Yeah. And they, were, they were just different brands. Same. Both of them are pretty new, had same tread depth. Luckily in Otis in the factory tool, it even says, when you select and you go through the guided functions, it says there's a new tire present. And you're like, yes. And it's, and then it gives a message that says as much as three millimeters or more of tread depth difference will cause this issue with, with a TVMS light. And I'm like, 1.2 centimeters of total height is absolutely more than three millimeters of tread mm-hmm. depth. So it's pretty crazy. That, that kind of stuff's what trips a lot of people up. So, Getting into ADOS is just literally being really precise with following instructions. So, and that's, I think, an important point when you say following instructions, you're talking about right from service information as opposed to maybe the aftermarket scan tool. Have you run into issues where instructions on the tool maybe are misleading or inaccurate? I've had them both ways. I've had them where they're, go ahead, PJ, sorry. I was just going to say the instructions on the tool are going to be far different than service information, generally speaking, just because of how things get set up with their stand compared mm-hmm. to OEM stands, at least from my experience and what I've yeah. seen. I have yeah. not used aftermarket targets myself, uh, but I've looked through aftermarket service information, or not aftermarket service information, but aftermarket scan tool instructions and uh, the setup procedures usually a little bit different than service information. Right. What I will find is that um, we use a lot of aftermarket targets with factory scan tools and factory service information. We did a lot just because we bought an Autel ADOS kit early on, and then we've supplemented a lot of factory into it since then. Um, and then tried to replicate some factory targeting systems as well. I mean, I, I called PJ and was like, can you send me dimensions on this thing? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, here's a picture that I found on the internet that's got all the all exactly the description. I'm like, oh, cool. I probably should have Googled a little harder. <laughs> and uh, so, so, you know, we find that same thing. The, the instructions that come with an aftermarket system are typically geared towards their tool. And for us, it presents a little bit of a challenge sometimes because uh, the factory instructions may have you place the target based on the base of the target at a location and the, and the aftermarket scan tool with an aftermarket target, maybe having you place that at the same location in the world for the target distance, but the stand differences because maybe the stand base sets at a different point or height or whatever. So for us, it's a lot of juggling sometimes like we have some aftermarket targets of some, and then we uh, bought the OE ones just because setting up the aftermarket target was too cumbersome using factory instructions. 
So we're like, ah, oh, we just need to get the factory stand. It's the only way to get more accurate. Although the target may be exactly the same dimensions, contrast, and usually the build quality of the aftermarket is far superior to the factory target. Um, in almost every instance, we found that the the build quality of an aftermarket, whether it be Autel or Top Don or Think Car launches targeting system, they're far superior in quality than the OE. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of that, yeah. I mean, keep it, in mind that Mitsubishi has you taping aluminum together to build your radar cone. <laughs> yeah. Toyota has you printing out the camera target and and gluing it to a piece of cardboard. Cardboard, <laughs> yeah, and then double side stick taping it to a stand. And Mercedes has you hang their target on their battery charging cart. Um, and yeah, yeah. So similar to PJ, I've been writing an ADOS class for quite a while. And I've, I have, what's funny is, is because we do so many calibrations, I literally have a thousand cal- plus calibrations to look through of pictures. Cause we, so I, I set up our system to where when my guys do a calibration, they have to take a picture of the cluster, a picture of the ADOS buttons, a uh, four corner picture. Uh, a picture of the service information, a picture of the scan tool uh, saying success, a picture of their setup of the targets, and then anything they find, right? So typically I've got anywhere from 10 to 20 pictures per calibration over the last couple of years of doing calibrations uh, saved up, right? And these are all on our information system is like a DVI. So I've got so many examples to use and I have hundreds of pictures of bent brackets and in- incorrectly installed components, Zip tied stuff, uh, sheetrock screwed stuff, self tappers put into things. Uh, yeah, you name it. I got pictures of it. It's it's awesome. And a lot of this, like beyond reading the service info, I guess the part I should have harped on more was understanding what you're doing. Right? Like, why are we placing this target in this location? It's because we sure. have to give the camera a reference point of where zero is. So we must be very accurate in where we place this target. And that's what a lot of the guys that are doing this, that are glass installers or someone who's just trying to do ADOS stuff, they're moving a target around, right? Like you're moving zero around. You can't do that. You got to get it exactly where it's supposed to be and then figure out what's wrong with the car, why it doesn't see zero. So, you, Sean, you've only done these in, in at training events. You haven't yeah. done any... Um, so yeah, I've done a couple in training events, taking some classes. Have you done any hands-on though or have you just had any... Yeah, they were hands-on ones. Uh, it was Vision. Actually, a few years ago, they had a car in this big classroom, and we set up the – I believe it was the Autel setup and all that. We did that. Yeah, um, it was the Audi and the Toyota. Yep, yep. Were you um, there, Sean? What's that? I was there, too. Yep. Were you in that so class, too? <laughs> like so 2019? Yep, yep. Yeah. Huh. Yep, Small Randy Briggs world. was teaching it. Yeah, exactly. I didn't know, that was I the didn't one. know either of you two then, actually. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Um, so yeah, in classes like that, there was one other one where I did it. And then we had targets uh, at the, at the college. And, uh, the problem was getting vehicles in that even needed it. And that was our challenge because all of our school cars were too old and it was, we got the targets after COVID dropped. So we couldn't take anything live in besides student cars and, None of the students are driving around vehicles yeah. <laughs> that, that yeah. need these ca- these targets or anything. So we did, I think, one, and the, it's been sitting ever since. But as time progresses, I'm sure I'll get into it more and do more. I don't, I haven't invested in it for my mobile business because I don't have the room in my Transit Connect. I, the shops I go to, like you mentioned, PJ, are not equipped 
to properly do them. Uh, maybe once I get more into body shops, but yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm learning a ton from you guys right now. So this is awesome. Now, if you, um, once you do a couple, they, you kind of understand what they want. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Honda and Toyota, their directions are a little bit different, but once you do a couple of them, you kind of just learn what they want. But if you just want to get started and you want to do it cheaply, I'm, I'd really start with Toyota. You can get the stands and the targets really inexpensive. Okay. You're talking about under 500 bucks, I'd say. Yep. And you can do all Toyota calibrations. That ain't bad at all. Yeah. You know, Honda's a little more. I think I ended up spending two, two grand, 2,500 on my Honda OEM targets. The problem with OEM targets is when you get into Nissan. You get a $5,000 radar plate. And it's massive. Like, like you'd have to, you'd have to haul it on the roof of your, your connect. It's a a massive target and I'm sure it's heavy. Yeah. So, so OEM, OEM is nice uh, until you get to European and Nissan calibrations. Right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. That's a kind of pick your battle sort of thing. uh, At least for, my mobile business where it's like, is that, is that the direction that I want to go? I'm trying to, uh, and doing, doing better with like keys and uh, doing more and more programming and easing slight, slightly away from diagnostics a little bit, but uh, you know, it's, it's like, where do I want to put my focus? Cause I can only, I can, uh, me personally, I can only absorb so much. So <laughs> I gotta, I gotta decide where to focus that energy. That's going to be most effective. But, um, I, I think this is one of the area that, you know, you're going to be running into one way or another. And if nothing else, I'll probably get, Hey, can you come diagnose this for us? We have the targets, but we can't figure out what's going on. Uh, that's where this knowledge would come in handy to, uh, yeah, you got to, a unit that's flipped backwards or a thing that's bent and stuff like that. So uh, knowing about these systems, I think is still super important. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. A lot of it's trial and error on some of it too. It's going to go out there and fail a whole bunch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's life. Um, Hopefully you guys got a few more minutes. I did have one more question kind of pertaining to what we were talking about. You hear a lot of stuff and you see a lot of stuff. You guys probably know exactly what I'm talking about, where people are either really for or really against ASC, right? And so we're kind of talking about ASC and um, we don't, it's a whole nother episode, obviously, to really go in depth, but I'm just curious to know if you are, I would assume both of you are, um, proponents of ASC and what's the benefit of actually taking the time to do this test and others. So you hear a lot of people say things like, uh, I know someone who was an ASC master and they couldn't fix a sandwich. You hear that a lot, but I also know people who aren't ASC certified who really can't fix a sandwich, you know, so they (laughs) kind of wash each other out. I think generally speaking, People who are ASE certified come across more professional to me, in my opinion. And and that's not putting anyone else down. I know there's a lot of people, you know, if you run your own business, you don't need to be ASE certified. I think it's beneficial to be, uh, but you don't need to be. But generally speaking, people, people who are ASE certified usually have a little bit more pride 
in themselves and their work. And that's the biggest bonus in my opinion. Yeah. So that's a, that's a multifaceted issue for sure. Um, same thing. I get the same, I get the same thing. I've worked with technicians that were master AC certified techs that really weren't stellar technicians when it comes, when we think of like, you know, the top 10% or whatever. And I've worked with the really awesome technicians that didn't have a single certification. Um, and when you talk to the ones that are genuinely answering your question about why or why not, why do they not have ASCs? The vast majority of ones that don't have ASCs have told me they're not good test takers and they feel like they wouldn't pass them. And I can tell you, I, I've interviewed a lot of technicians, right? I'm both a technician, have been for a really long time, but I'm also a business owner that employs four people. So, and I've interviewed a lot of people during that. And and what I and I I pop quiz everyone that interviews with me. They get an eight to ten question ASE test right in front of them, and they didn't know it was coming. And it really separates the individuals. So I question them first, talk to them, and when they get that far, I give them. And I, I kind of let them know, like, hey, so you know, these are really hard questions. Um, not very many people get all of these right. So please don't beat yourself up over it. Uh, these are intentionally difficult and they kind of give me a baseline. I expect a certain amount of them to be incorrect and a certain amount to be correct. And if you get them all right, then you're going to far surpass my, my expectations, right? And kind of put them at ease. It still freaks them out. I can tell. I can tell they're super sure. freaked out because I just gave them like <laughs> 10 questions and they're, they're losing their mind, right? And so I go, when you get done, we're going to, we're going to talk about them and you can keep the sheet. I don't want it. I just want to hear how you came to each conclusion. And some of these, there might not be a right answer. So it's okay to be like, I'm not answering this, but we'll talk about it. So I, I kind of give them an out. The, the, the truth is, is all of them are someone who's a technician that can do what we do. Uh, should be able to answer all of these pretty easy. They're, they're like circuit questions. And it, for me, it just separates. Do they understand what field trims are? Um, like that's a kind of a basic diagnostic thing. And there's just, just ba- two basic field term questions on generic systems uh, and then uh, three wiring ones and one like oil pressure. Uh, so do they understand kind of how oil control valves work or, or in like a three, six engine, you know, something that's similar, something very, very common we run into, right. Things. And, and I hate writing sure. questions, manufacturer specific, but this isn't an ASE test. They're just an ASE multiple choice style test. And it lets me know where they're at, right? And if they miss all the electrical ones and they don't have any clue about field trims, it's like, man, they, they, they work on a lot of cars. They change a lot of parts, but they're not really there, right? Mm-hmm. And I get that a lot. Guys that tell me that, yeah, I'm a master tech at the dealer and blah, blah, blah all these things. And, and then I put these 10 questions in front of them. They can't answer a simple horn circuit, right? So, yeah. and I mean, it's like a simple horn circuit question. So I get that a lot. And then, I kind of run that in and find guys that the vast majority of guys that talk down about ASEs are because they failed them a couple of times. And, mm, and it's yeah. not because they're a bad technician or dumb technician. It might, it might be that they psyched themselves out, right. And overanalyze questions. I did that in the beginning too. Uh, but when they get some animosity toward it, towards it, I th- it's typically because they lack the, the actual fundamental understanding of the subject to really get it. Cause that's all that an ASE test is, is that you understand the basics if you're a mm-hmm. master ASE master a one through not eight plus nine or whatever, um, that doesn't mean that you are a master technician of all of the things, right? Yeah. Just, you've got to, right. you, you have met the minimum qualifications to understand these systems and that's it. So that's kind of my, when I hear about that argument between the two, I always want to set that straight. I'm like real quick, just so we're clear, just so if someone's a master, it means they have a basic understanding 
of the fundamental systems. They understand those. And that's a great foundation to start. And then you got to prove it with real aptitude in the field, right? So yep. I'm on both sides of the fence. ASC does not mean you're a master for real, but also yeah. it's not worthless. Uh, and as an owner, I actually disagree with PJ on that. I think if you're a business owner, you should push ASC super hard, at least for your technicians. I may have misunderstood what he was saying, but I think for your technicians, you need to have ASC. Because if we go to court and it's my ASC technician versus the other shop saying that we damaged this customer's car and that I should pay for it and I'm certified and they're not, I win. I've I've been there yeah. and I've seen it. If If I'm certified and you're not, I win the discussion. The... You know, the judge is going to be like, it's great. You've been working on cars for a really long time, but you have no certification proving anything. You know, mm-hmm. so that's it. It's it is the only defendable in court certification that we have. Um, and that's important to me yeah. as a business owner. I so. wasn't saying that shop owners shouldn't. I was saying that they should, uh, you know, they have their own choice. They can do whatever they want. But if yeah. I were running a business, yeah. I would want my guys to yeah. be ASE certified yeah. as well. I think an owner doesn't, but they the technicians are. need to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the verbiage of master tech, I've definitely questioned that myself yeah. when I, cause I, I was, I aggressively got my, you know, a one through eight and L one as soon as I could out of tech school, as yeah. soon as the time, you know, whatever it is, like you need so much experience and I just got it. I was, I probably still am, but I was so far from being a master technician. I had the patch and everything and I felt it. I'm like, I don't know all this stuff, but I passed the test. But yeah, I I think that's something to really make clear to people is that it is the, it is the base level of competence, but it shows professionalism and your, your commitment to professionalism and to this trade. And Hey, that's that's what we need for yeah something like court. Hopefully you're never in that situation, but just for the general public and dealing with customers, and uh, why not? It's it's what we got. It's obviously a lot of work goes into making these tests, as you were describing, and I don't know if everybody knows that, but it is an enormous undertaking to make these tests what they are. So uh, definitely. Uh, Take some time, and whether it's ADAS or not, I suggest go taking those tests if you don't have them. Sean, when you know you you're around a lot of students who probably feel that pressure of tests. Do mm-hmm. you see guys who are just bad test takers? Yep. Who can yep. really just kick butt? Yep, hundred um, percent. Some people, and I, I wish I had a more technical answer for as to why. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist or yeah. understand that side of it, but some people are so much better when you put a tool in their hands or a car in front of them as opposed to a piece of paper. And I think some of it is like Keith mentioned, psyching yourself out. Like, you know, this stuff, but the anxiety and the pressure just wipes everything. You're just a blank slate, just staring at this piece of paper or you're moving too fast and not reading all of the yeah. question or all of the answers, or it could yeah, be some real, yeah, real basic rudimentary. They need some English class. I, that that was one thing I experienced a lot because I'm at a community college. I have uh, uh, ESOLs, what their, the title is English speakers of other languages. And they're trying to figure out English and then trying to answer these tests but you give some of these guys some tools out in the shop and they're the best in the class. They just, the, the, the test side of it. So there, there's a lot of, obviously a lot of variables there, but yeah, oh, yeah, there, there are people 
who are really good at test taking and they they kind of figure it out right because i i make my questions the same way like there's definitely a clear answer and there's something that i'm working towards in the question the way i asked the question is is leading you towards something if you understand that and people people can see that so certain people can just see that in a question oh he's nudging me in this direction this is where this question this is the subject or the the part of the lecture that this question was about, and then it's easier to find the answer, even if you didn't know it. Um, but not everybody sees that, right? Or not everybody can see it in the moment. So it's it's a weird psychological thing. Yeah. Who's good at tests and who isn't? I separate them out three ways. There's people who are bad at taking tests. There's people who are not bad at taking tests. And then there are good test takers. And I don't mean that as in um, they just, they always you know, they're not psyched out by it. That's someone who's not bad at taking tests. A good test taker is someone who analyzes the question based on its structure to determine the answer has nothing to do with the content. Right. And that's, that's someone who can recognize some of that pattern stuff. Someone who's, you know, you could take someone who is a professional test taker and let them take Mm -hmm. an ASC test and they probably wouldn't do very well, but you can take someone that's a professional test taker and let them take other tests that have not had millions of dollars poured into making it a good test to try to be, um, structured well, and they can pass that test just based on the structure wasn't there. They didn't know about all these little nuances of writing test questions that, that give away the answer. So there's there's a lot to that. And another thing for me with ASE tests, it's voluntary. I feel like that gives it so much more of its weight. We're not required sure. to take it. Yeah, you dedicated no. some of your own personal time to make that happen. Yeah, and drove across the city twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Once in the wrong direction. <laughs> so hey, I took a both, test. Go ahead. Are you both on the ASC app for A1 and A- through A8? Or yep, may- yeah. it might even include A9. I don't have A9. But I'll it tell does, you what, some of does. the questions are though on that are really well done. I had a question about relative compression. Yeah, so there are a lot of test scope stuff on there that will not make it in a regular test <laughs> that's on the yes. app. We get away yeah, with a lot a in the app. Com- a relative, com- relative compression question about an exhaust valve not opening and how it would affect the uh, compression waveform. Yep. I'm waiting for new questions for my research. They just <laughs> came too. out. New questions. Just, I got my notification like yesterday, the day before, new questions are available. Maybe it's based on when you sign up. I think that's it what is. it is. Because mine, I don't get my next set of questions until the 14th. Yeah, mine's a 22nd, so I just want oh, to like through them. But. Third or fourth or something. So, okay. Must yeah, be I really like that because if there is a downside to ASE, it is – I have taken the ASE breaks like five times now. <laughs> and I'm just like, man, I, don't, I do not feel like going and doing it. So having that app, is, I really like that app. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, for anybody who's not familiar, it's – I believe it's only for research, right? You can't do the the, the, yeah. the initial yes. test. Yeah. And so you download it on your phone and you get a series of questions, I think one a week and um, same style one, 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 right? format. Oh, is it month? Oh, okay. Yeah, one okay. a month. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah and, 50 bucks a year and you get one a month and you have to pass eight a, a fiscal year to research and it research you for one year, right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Very convenient, and like PJ mentioned, all the questions have been great on that that app that I've seen. Um, 
they give you a little bit more time for the electrical questions because you kind of have to analyze the diagram and stuff. Um, but it's not, I'm sure you could cheat if you, if you were really trying to, but you kind of have to like get after it and answer that question. There's not a whole lot of time to look stuff up or anything like yeah, that. There's only yeah. what three, three minutes for most electrical questions, maybe four. Yeah. Three, mm-hmm. or yeah, four three, minutes. three minutes. Yeah. You really got to know. Yep. But uh, I'll uh, I'll include the links to everything we talked about tonight in the show notes for anybody listening wants to check this stuff out, get signed up. It'll all be there. Um, yeah, thanks for uh, taking the time tonight, guys. I really appreciate it. Heck yeah. Thanks, yeah, for, thanks for having us. All right, that's going to do it for today's episode. I want to give a big thank you to Keith and PJ for taking time out of their busy schedules to help me out on this. And I'd also like to thank everybody that's listening and the feedback that I've been getting and the suggestion like for this episode. So keep those coming. Really appreciate it. With that all out of the way, let's get out there and start fixing the world one car at a time.